The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Craig Kramer has worked as a lawyer in the U.S. Congress at an international human rights organization and went on to a variety of roles in global, corporate, and governmental affairs at Johnson & Johnson, one of the world's largest companies. Then mental health crisis hit for two of his children. The family had to navigate the criminal justice system, the mental health system, and two demanding careers without a map, changing the family's dynamics, creating tension, and making Craig reevaluate what he was doing. Craig served as the first mental health ambassador for Johnson & Johnson, but the shift wasn't always easy. Craig joins us now, as does his son, Peter Lee Kramer, has struggled with his own mental health and his relationship with his father over time. But they've come out the other side. Today, Peter is pursuing a graduate degree to become a licensed therapist, a career path also changed by his experiences with the mental health system. And we start with Peter's story because it contributed greatly to his father's career change and reprioritization. Peter made it to college, a top-tier college, and was an NCAA champion soccer player but there were mental health challenges lurking behind that impressive resume. I started by asking Peter how he thought about himself, if he was always someone driven to succeed. No. (laughs) To be completely (laughs) honest, um, I would say that my success in soccer might paint a picture of somebody who's highly driven and motivated. But school was always, I don't know if torment is the right word, but I'll use that for now, where I always underachieved. And most of my teachers, if not all, said that I lacked a certain motivation. I was always viewed as talented, Mm -hmm. but not somebody who had the best work ethic or discipline. Were you the if only he could try harder, kid. Yeah, exactly. Like, I know this kid has so much potential that he's not unlocking and he's getting in his way. And I think the dichotomy of my identity in soccer and then in school was almost perfectly represented during the time when we won the national championship because uh-huh. I was having this like unprecedented success in soccer, feeling as like a major part of this team that was doing something really incredible while simultaneously basically failing out of Tufts academically. Wow. Yeah, so I think in reflecting about that time, there's a lot of value in how did I achieve these things while also going through this really difficult time personally and emotionally. And I think just reading a little bit about like your book and how anxiety can be a superpower, I have tapped into a lot of like, how did I control my anxiety in this supposedly very anxious, like stepping on a national championship field for the first time, but then like having this almost like serene calmness on the field while afterwards 
just not feeling in control of my life at all. Wow. Craig, would you consider yourself, when you were younger, a high-achieving, driven kid? I, yeah, I, th- I think I was. At the same time, I think Peter and I both share a family trait of, of imposter syndrome. You know, we look around and wonder how we got here. We, we feel intensely blessed and, and grateful and lucky. You know, certainly turning points in our lives were opportunities that in some way we created, but in, in some ways just came our way. So I'm not one who would go out and tell the world I'm successful, but I have all the markers of success and I, I feel grateful for that. Well, but you you say you're a kid from a small town in Michigan and you sort of made it to a pretty big stage in your career, you know, so I don't think it's telling people you're successful. I think it's sort of empirical, like you you had that drive. That's right. And I I think we're going to talk about mental health today. And, um, yeah, I I think I early in my journey had some depression that I was lucky enough to get some treatment for early on and, and find ways to manage that. And so there were, you know, there were times where that would take over. When I give a leadership talk at my former company, Johnson & Johnson, where I just retired from, I used to talk about the, th- the three times I was fired by three different CEOs for what seemed like big failures at the time, but were later understood to be learning and, and kind of breakthrough moments for the company and for myself. So it has not been a linear, you know, every day's sunshine and and rainbows, but it, no, it's, it's been a it's been a very gratifying and meaningful and purpose-led uh, life. So you say that you had some depression when you were younger. Did you consider yourself a person, certainly by the time that Peter was born, a person with, with mental health stuff? Was it something that you thought about? Uh, yeah, by the time Peter was born, you know, I, I had gotten a pretty good handle on being aware of when I was being overwhelmed by life and and emotions and things like that, and how to self-correct, whether through exercise or sleep or, you know, various cognitive behavioral skills that I learned when I was in college. You know, I think I avoided probably the clinical phase uh, because of those those, those learnings early on. Hmm. So when Peter was born, I, I didn't think of myself as somebody who was clinically mentally ill, but I, I was somebody who understood that, especially when you're raising a young family and you're pursuing a high-stakes career in law and politics, that you, you can't expect yourself to do it all without having something in reserve and making sure you keep it available. Yeah. I want to take a step back. Tell me why we're here today. I think it's incredible what you're doing. And I'd love you to share that narrative in whichever way Whoever wants to start, <laughs> why are you here with me today talking about family and mental health? I would say that mental health has significantly impacted every member of our family in different ways. I know that personally, I've had pretty significant struggles with mental health. I mean, going back to the Tufts National Championship, I was arrested a month later, and I attribute everything that led up to the decisions that I made, they were impacted by anxiety, depression, unchecked trauma, Mm. just a lack of understanding. And I would say for my personal experience, the way that our family has come together and almost rewired our way of communicating and understanding one another and contributing to like our family as a whole 
has really helped me feel less alone. Because mm. during those times, I, I mean, my dad can add on to this, but we're not the best at confrontation. And that leads to not having difficult conversations when they need to be had. And as a result of things that have happened with me and other, my siblings, my parents, we've, you know, there was one time where we sat through a, I think it was like a 12 or 13 hour family therapy session. Holy. Um, and I can tell you that I cried, I laughed, I yelled. It just all came And out. maybe we are, we're due for another one in the near future, but that day changed our family for the better. And I think just as a son, as a brother, you always want to feel like you can depend on your family. Yeah. And it's extremely reassuring when you're going through things that you have somebody who you can call at any time, no matter what they're doing, and have just like dump whatever's on your mind out. Mm. And, and more, yeah, I, I did have this long career in law and politics and business, and our family ran in, in 2013 into a series of mental health crises. We almost lost one family member to suicide. We lost another one to opiate overdose, and then we temporarily lost Peter a little while later to the criminal justice system for about two years, all due to mental health issues, obviously. And I was fortunate at the time to be working for Johnson & Johnson, the leading neuroscience company in the world, and the leading healthcare company in the world, and I had just come off a project working on HIV globally. You might remember at the time that millions of people were dying a year, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And we worked with a lot of partners to try to solve that. And, um, you know, I think we're all proud that today HIV is no longer a death sentence like it was then. It's now a chronic illness, and, and soon there may be vaccines to make it entirely preventable. And as my family was going through this mental health crisis, and I started talking to our neuroscience leaders like Dr. Husseini Manji, you know, it struck me that we we had the same challenge in mental health. We needed to end the stigma. We needed to advance the science, and not just the biological pharmaceutical sciences, but the talk therapy science and the digital science and the social science and all that. And we also needed to fix the system. Mm. So I, working with our CEO, launched a, a company initiative around this. The one thing that is missing is is having a bird's eye view on how families are dealing with this because the family is crucial to so much of our lives and our support. Yeah. And while it is possible for an individual to single-handedly you know, pull themselves out of a mental health diagnosis, it usually happens in the context of the community. And it turns out all of my children are now in mental health. Peter and his sister are, are getting master's in social work to become therapists. Stephen is a uh, software designer for a mental health mobile app company. <laughs> and, and this is all after 2013 that this all happened. And yet we wanted to, by talking with you, sort of begin a conversation about how hard and how important it is to have these conversations, to normalize mental health in the family so that we can all thrive. And it's something we're still working at. Yeah. But that's why we wanted to talk to you today. Let's start by naming. I mean, Peter, what is your diagnosis and what happened? I'm not huge on like specific diagnoses, but I believe my therapist just gave me generalized anxiety disorder. That was when I was 22, 23-ish. And when I was, I want to say 12, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can remember I had this period of 
I just like couldn't get out of bed to go eat. And I told my sister about it. She has some eating disorder experience. And she was like, you need to go eat. You're just depressed. You need to like do something to counteract that. I think there's some limitations to like accepting diagnoses. Mm. Uh, lack of appetite and then overeating are both symptoms of depression. Everybody should treat their diagnosis the way that it serves them best. And for me, it's always been better to feel like an individual person. Nobody else has been Peter Lee Kramer in the history of mankind. <laughs> so that, you know, I have the freedom and the opportunity to take my life in any direction, given, you know, my predisposal to high anxiety and how that affects me and how depression affects me and how those things interact with my behavior and emotions. I mean, I've had this conversation with a bunch of my friends where it's like, if we as parents have very complicated mental health diagnoses, yet we're still surprised when our kids do, <laughs> you know, there's a level of acceptance that we all have to have with the brains that we're given. And it's true. We do have to work towards it as a family. Well, I, I wonder more if you talk to your children openly about this. I suspect you do because you have a podcast and you're out in public. <laughs> I do. <laughs> After we went through our crucible year of 2013 and beyond, we started to find out that the preceding generation had lived with depression on both ends of the family and had done a good job of hiding it. Mm. And yet, you know, you realize that you can hide these things, but the effects are still there on the, on the people you're loving and trying to raise. And they may be influenced both, obviously, you carry the genetics, um, but there are, you know, this trauma that's passed down. And I, I don't know if that's epigenetically or or just uh, socially. In the water, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm hoping that the conversations that you're having in your family, the conversations we're having, and I hope Peter, if and when he becomes a parent himself, uh, that <laughs> he'll have with his kids that, it will be less of a surprise and a little more, you know, at least you're not flying blind. You say, okay, this is possibly what's here, and here are the tips and tricks and tools and supports that can lead to a better outcome. And and that we can, you know, deflect the trajectory of these illnesses before they become deeply entrenched like they did in our family, have in our family. So that, I'm hoping that that's the future that we're trying to build here. I do too. And I have to tell you, it's so funny. I was sitting with my mother and she was recalling her aunt in Kansas. And she said, you know, they always said she was just a little peculiar. <laughs> and it turns out she was institutionalized for most of her adult life. Mm -hmm. Another uncle had committed suicide. I mean, the family history was rife. But of course, back then, well, they were just a little peculiar. Mm -hmm. And it made me feel so grateful to live in the age that we do, where we can name it and we can treat it. Definitely. I would say our family is extremely fortunate. My immediate family, my dad did lose a brother, but we're extremely fortunate to have gone through the significant events that we did without losing anybody. And I know that's not always the case. Yeah. I think my dad and I have parallel motivations for what we do, but it is to prevent any sort of tragedy as a result of like undiscussed mental health or undiscussed problems because of whatever the stigma or influence may be to like hide things. I would 
argue that every family in the world is impacted by mental health, whether or not they know or can acknowledge it. Even if your family is perfect, I always think therapy will help, family therapy will help. <laughs> There's just nothing that's going to impact your life as positively as just trying to acknowledge areas that we can improve upon, especially in regards to mental health. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. What's the hardest conversation the two of you have ever had? I will say, I don't know if I've ever talked about this publicly, but I don't mind. I think it was, so throughout college and high school, I mean, and middle school and elementary school, but things really came to a head during college. I ended up taking my sophomore spring semester off because I was just in a very bad place. I was having panic attacks. It felt like for a week straight, I slept from like 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. and then would have a panic attack until like 5 a.m. and then try to get some sleep. And that would go on for a week. It literally felt like I time traveled. Mm. Off the back of that, though, I didn't really deal with like the underlying things that were happening. I did take time off from school and I worked on what I wanted to do and align my interests with my schoolwork without really going deep into like the emotional part of what I was experiencing. So I think it was junior year of college. I was with my girlfriend who lived in Canada Mm. and I was in a terrible place. And I told her that I didn't care if I lived or died. I didn't think anybody in my family did. I said I would be doing them a favor if I died. That's just how I felt in the moment. I felt like I was a burden to the world given my problems and I don't remember what happened exactly but I think she called my dad and told him what I had said and he drove from Princeton New Jersey to Canada I think he maybe got in the car less than 30 minutes after hanging up the phone with my girlfriend at the time and came to pick me up and drove me home And I think the conversation we had in the car that day was one of, if not the most difficult conversation we've ever had together. And my dad did say something that has stuck with me. And it is weird, these things that we latch onto and make them a part of who we are. But he he said, uh, if you take your own life, you don't get to write your own story anymore. And if you choose to keep fighting, to keep trying to make your life better, then you are the one who gets to write your own story. That's something that's always stuck with me. Craig, how do you remember that day? 
Wow. It's uh, Peter, thanks for sharing that. I, I do remember getting the call from his girlfriend and, and jumping in the car, driving eight hours up to Montreal, um, meeting them at a restaurant. And uh, she was a terrific supporter. And, uh, you know, somebody was picking on something that I think she hadn't planned. Uh, but by the time I got there, Peter had sort of calmed down a little bit. Um, and then we hopped in the car and drove back. I think all in one day, as I remember it. I, I don't remember saying those words. I, I wish I had remembered them because they're, they, they sound wonderful. Uh, <laughs> and I'm glad it got through. At that time, we were dealing with a couple of other mental health challenges in the family. And I think in retrospect, when I think back to that time, I felt like Peter was stabilized and, and, uh, was in care. And then he actually went back to college in the fall. Uh, and yet, in light of what happened later, you know, where he ended up being arrested and entering the largest mental health system in the country, the jails, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we, we didn't spend enough time sorting that out at the time. So I have a little bit of regret about that. But I think that's a common story, especially when kids are teenagers. You want to think it's just a phase or it's a developmental issue or, you know, we'll get through it. And it's hard. Um, I think looking back on it, Peter, you know, if, if somebody in our family was in that kind of straits, we would have a, a lot more knowledge about what to do, you know, what specific treatments to look for and, and kind of support to get. But I think at the time we were still in a fog and, and really trial and error trying to figure out how to manage these various conditions. And Peter was not the worst person off in our family at that point. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes you're just in survival mode and it's really hard to be planful, right? You're just trying to get through the day. Definitely. You know, at the time, both my wife and I were in in high demand positions uh, in corporate America and nobody at that time wanted to know what was going on in your personal life. You just had to show up and get the job done. And Hmm. so that's partly why, you know, you don't do everything just right, but also the system as such in the United States for mental health is so hard to navigate. And, um, and you know, some people argue that there is no system really in most parts of the country. It's, mm-hmm. it's just these disparate uh, resources that if you're <laughs> lucky and strong and persistent and rich enough, you can pull them together. You know, Peter, thanks again for sharing that. That's uh, That was a time where, you know, on the one hand, we got you through and you uh, went on to continue school and other successes. On the other hand, we obviously a loud uh, call for more action than we applied at the time. How did you all learn to talk about this? You said at the beginning that communicating and having difficult conversations or confrontations was not something that your family did naturally. And yet here you are. How do you start? What's your advice? That is a good question. (laughs) (laughs) You can take your time. I I don't know if there is a specific playbook that will fit any family. I would say it's more of like your approach to these conversations. Mm. Just thinking about myself and, you know, preparation for what we're here to talk about. I was thinking how when I'm struggling, I rarely present as such i'm usually on the outside everybody's like this guy doesn't care about anything he's just so calm and chill when in my brain and in my body i'm just freaking out Mm. afraid to ask for help 
trying to hold it together with everything that I can. And I remember the conversations that I had with like, whether it be a coach or a professor or a parent or somebody who's trying to show support. Just when they came at me with like this unconditional love and openness and asking questions as opposed to like making assumptions or trying to give me advice, that always allowed me in my head this freedom to express myself in ways that were not comfortable for me or not something that I would normally do. Usually like these conversations come as a result of something negative happening. Right. Crisis has to happen for the conversation to happen. Right. And I think like, I love that my dad said that, you know, he felt responsible for not helping me as much as he should have, that he got me like back to school, but that the underlying issues were always there. It is fortunate and unfortunate, but it is the individual's responsibility to make those significant changes and to acknowledge them. So sometimes it's really difficult, even when you know somebody's struggling and even when they know they're struggling and you try to reach out to them, they might not be ready or have the capacity to have that conversation. Mm. Well, and when you're young. Definitely. Yeah, Maura, that's a great question about how we started having these conversations. And I, at the time of the Peter's, uh, this phone call that he described, uh, our family was deeply in crisis. We were trying to navigate this uh, mental health care. And because there really is no health, mental health system, you know, the family has to really become that system to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. And that puts a lot of pressure on all the points of the family. So I, I, I think my marriage, which ended a few years later, was a partly a casualty of that stress and I mean, you're, it's life and death, and like you say, it's a, it's a desperation that you feel. And then, if you're sick, you're not always the easiest person to talk to and have conversations with. But we didn't, you know, we didn't have the language because the we didn't grow up with that language. As I say, the previous generation mm-hmm. suffered in silence. Um, there was another conversation that I'll, I'll talk about in a moment, where I think was a turning point in how we talk as a family. But I, I do want to just uh, – so I, Peter's brother has a girl who's almost three now, my granddaughter. When our kids were young, we gave them timeouts. You know, we sent them into a corner and expected them to kind of work out in their own brains what was going on. <laughs> when my granddaughter has an emotional eruption, she has a time in, and they have a, a, a chart that shows faces with different emotions. And at the age of almost three, she is very literate in – her emotional landscape. Um, you know, she knows the difference between frustration and anger and sadness and happiness and is starting to understand how to navigate from one to the other. It's remarkable. So that that's the future. Um, mm. Peter, the conversation I'm thinking of where we, you've talked about this before, I think, is, is that when we had that, that day-long um, family session, um, maybe it was a weekend long, mm-hmm. Um, and there were some, you know, as Peter said, uh, very tough conversations. And at, at that time, more I I had started, you know, I had this privilege of being a Johnson and Johnson, of starting to work on mental health professionally, and um, was starting to ar- articulate uh, what our vision was as a company and what what we thought were some of the things that needed to happen systemically and societally. And Peter really took me on in this family meeting about that. I will gladly take over the story from here. 
I'll preface this with this. My dad and I, I'm hearing myself talk and him talk. We're pretty vague about certain things. And that is because we, or I'll speak for myself and I think my dad will agree. I know that other people's stories have impacted mine, but to the specific details of what happened, if it is their story, I do not try to tell it in a way that makes it feel like I'm the main character because I know that that's not the case. I respect that 100%. Yep. To kind of build off of that, my dad had started doing TED Talks. They were surrounding my sister Mm. and things that she had gone through. It was a great TED Talk. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, But my sister... And I guess this goes back to like our family dynamic and not being confrontational. Like we just want everybody else to feel okay. We are very accommodating in that regard to a fault Mm -hmm. where it makes us uncomfortable and we're now suffering consequences from things. So I felt that she was uncomfortable to have this conversation with my dad. And I felt in a certain lens, he was using her story for, you know, the impact of this Ted talk And whether or not that's not invaluable in a certain way to share the experience of a father who has gone through these things. I don't think that, you know, this is one of the parts where I was crying and yelling at the same time. (laughs) I just felt a need to stand up for my sister at that time. And to my dad's credit, he took it in stride. He accepted responsibility for the things that I was calling him out for. And I think if you hear him talk, his talk is much different now. Uh, Dad, do you have anything to add? <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a one of many moments during that weekend um, that helped us break through to each other. One part of it was that Peter said, "Dad, you're a hypocrite because our family's a mess, and you're out there acting like you know what the answers are." <laughs> Peter at that time was working for a, a mental health nonprofit, which was founded by a family which is so often the case, who had lost their child to suicide. Um, Mm. And we had a a discussion about whether our experience of of surviving suicide and other mental health challenges was as important as these other voices out in the community that we were all supporting. So I I think we came out out of that understanding that not only can we talk about this internally, not only do we need to talk about it as a family, and Peter was forging a new way of having that conversation, but that we can also talk about it externally. And I think that's when Peter, Peter, I don't know how long after that, but you started becoming a public spokesperson yourself. Mm-hmm. You spoke at the United Nations. You spoke at local events. So that particular conversation stands out for a number of reasons because um, it changed the way we related to each other, but it also changed our understanding of what our responsibility and opportunity was in the world. You know, you got me thinking, Craig, from your viewpoint, your lens as a, as a mental health ambassador, which was a, a title you, you actually had at J&J, what's your advice on respecting boundaries while still disclosing and being open about mental health? I mean, I, I think a lot of us are doing this by trial and error, you know, and it gets very difficult, especially if it's not your story to share, if it's your, if your kid or your partner. How do you think about boundaries? 
you know, I had gotten my daughter's permission. In fact, she was there when I did the talk. In retrospect, I don't think she was uh, fully well at that point and maybe didn't have the, all the powers of consent. But um, And it may have helped and also hurt her trajectory. Um, I'm happy to say she's doing very well these days. Um, oh, that's great. And has put a lot of work in uh, to get there. And I think Peter really, in that conversation at the family session, really helped me understand more deeply how important those boundaries were. When, when I started this role uh, with the support of our CEO and others um, to put J&J out in the world, pushing for mental health reform the way we had done for HIV and before that for cancer, and more recently for COVID, you know, the company's been involved in all these health issues. I was focused externally. I, you know, we were working globally. With we, we knew all the health ministers and prime ministers and hospital CEOs around the world and patient groups. But almost immediately, our employees started contacting me. And at first, it was by the hundreds, and then it was by the thousands, sending me emails describing their stories. And and each one was as poignant as our own. And you know, there were so many employees. We ultimately decided to create an employee resource group. You know, we have employee resource groups for LGBTQ community, for women, for veterans, for different racial and ethnic groups. And so we, we formed an ERG for employees who live with mental illness, either as a patient themselves, which we know is about one out of four people, mm-hmm. or as a caregiver, which we know is about two out of four people, mm. and then as allies. And it became the fastest growing new ERG in Johnson & Johnson history. It's in over 80 countries now. You know, we're a global, J&J is a global company. We also found out, you know, right away it was very intersectional. So all the other ERGs wanted to partner with us to start telling the LGBT stories of isolation and bullying and suicide, yeah. the veteran stories of PTSD and suicide and the black and Asian stories of discrimination and violence and and trauma from the very outset uh, built into it the idea that people could tell their own stories. We we have we built multiple platforms. We have a monthly internal speaker series. We have an annual TED style talk uh, where we put people up on a big stage in front of a thousand colleagues. And the appetite for people to tell their story was uh, was incredible. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think 10 years ago, no one would have wanted to stand up on a stage, but we live in a time where this is more common. And yet when people would come and say, you know, sh- I, I'm kind of interested in telling my story, what's your advice? And I would say the same thing t- today. I would say, my advice is don't tell your story. Really? Well, uh, it's not the whole answer. <laughs> that's my, start- okay, okay, that's okay. my starting answer. <laughs> okay. On the one hand, we're creating a safe environment in our, in our own organization. But that still depends on who your supervisor is and who mm-hmm. your work colleagues are. You know, we're not, we can't change the culture in a day. And, and furthermore, when you leave this organization, you know, once you tell your story, it's out in the wild and you don't know if the next organization is going to be as receptive to this. Mm. Having said that, you know, we are building a movement inside here and outside in the world. And, you know, you can see it every day. And so if you want to tell your story, we will give you the the we'll give you the training to tell that story in a way that's self-protective, that's safe, and also effective. Mm. You know, often when people first tell their story, they want to just get it off their chest all the terrible things that happened, and that sometimes makes you feel good, um, but it, it doesn't help your audience understand what 
the next steps are and what their role is. More often, people look at you as somebody who's really badly wounded and is maybe somebody they don't want to take a risk uh, investing in. So our storytelling, you know, just very simply, we say, you know, no more than 30% of your talk should be about the horror of your experience and 70% should be about the hope and and the things that worked for you so that others can take away Hmm. a message. And we really let people set their own boundaries and we give them enough training so that they're going to be safe. And, you know, this technology, if you want to call it, that is now spread there's hundreds of these ERGs. There are hundreds of groups that help train people to speak their story. And I, I think I would encourage families to think of this in the same way. As Peter said, it's really up to the individual to decide how much they want to put out in the universe. And yet I hope that, you know, that my my, my granddaughter's generation is going to grow up <laughs> talking about this. Um, I, I just want to finish this by saying that when I was her age, my, my grandfather died of cancer, a little bit older than, than she, maybe maybe seven or eight. And, you know, back then, cancer was very stigmatized. You, you didn't even say the word cancer. You would say the C word. Hmm. And there weren't a lot of treatments, so or there was not a good understanding of how to treat it at the time. And so when you got it, you just hit it and, and wrote it out. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, that those, the younger generation can talk about mental health the way that we do now. We now talk about cancer. You know, we t- face it head on. We get right out there. We wear the pink ribbons. We have optimism and hope about uh, our outcomes. And we now have lots of treatments that are tested. And, you know, we know on day one, uh, my dad had cancer five years ago. We knew on day one exactly what his probabilities were and what the types of treatments were that needed to be undertaken. Right. And I'm hoping that someday when somebody gets a bipolar diagnosis, we we can tell them a lot more about how how the future is going to work and, and how they can manage their condition and, and continue to thrive in the world. You've highlighted two things that I think are really important I want to pull out for the audience. One is that it's your story. You don't have to tell all of it. Mm-hmm. You can keep your boundaries and still help other people. Mm-hmm. And the second is, if it's not your story, to treat that with care and honor. Mm-hmm. And I just want to dive in just as we end here a little bit on the judgment. Because Craig, you mentioned this, and it is true that there's so much stigma still that people feel like you might be a risk if you disclose a chronic mental illness. And I want to hear about looking back on your career. You didn't disclose a chronic mental illness, but I'm sure that when you were going through the hell that it sounds like you went through, you weren't 100% at your job. How could you have been? How did you handle that then? And then looking back, do you wish you handled it differently or did it all not matter and you ended up in a great place anyway? Just tell us what looking back on that is like. Well, yeah, I've learned this term presenteeism where you you know, where you show up to work <laughs> and you're not really all there. I mean, I, there were many nights when I would go to bed not knowing whether all my children were going to be alive in the morning or, or not knowing if there's going to be a phone call in the middle of the night. Um, and so I wasn't sleeping particularly well. And then when I was at work, uh, you know, my wife and I were trying to find new treatment pathways and trying to learn about these illnesses and also trying to avoid misinformation. When we had our first problem, we went to the pediatrician, uh, which I think most parents would do, not realizing that even today, certainly back then, but even today, 
primary care doctors get very little training in mental health. Yeah. So we got some well-intended advice. We took it. We thought that was uh, a solution, but it really was just kicking the can down the road and allowing the disease to you know deepen and get more entrenched. And, and you know, you talk about anxiety, right? I mean, you're <sighs> the, the, oh my these gosh. are high stakes. And <laughs> right around this time, um, I mean, there was a moment where I had one child coming out of an inpatient facility. I had another one going to criminal justice system, and. Uh, I had a couple of other stressors in the family at that time, and my then boss called me in and and fired me. What? Yes, and uh, <laughs> oh uh, anyway, maybe fires. They, they said your position has been eliminated, <laughs> but I have no doubt that, and I've never talked it through with. Uh, I, I, I have little doubt that my performance had something to do with that. That I was, you know, not necessarily showing up. Uh, Hundred uh, percent. I think I was still achieving things. Uh, my ratings had always been good, but you know, I, at some level, I think people understood that I was not engaged. I was not the engaged employee they were looking for. It was out of that that moment, in fact, um, that I realized it was time to do something in this area, and that's when I ended up going to the CEO and talking about. I had this other idea of something I could work on. Um, <laughs> Ironically, the HR per, you know when, when they have these meetings, the, your supervisor's there, and there's somebody from HR, and, and, and when you walk in the room, you know this is not the standard you know performance review. Mm. That HR partner later became the the founder and head of our employee resource group, the mental health diplomats, <laughs> because at that very moment she was going through her own mental health crisis, and she has now become a, an outspoken leader in the space and and a good friend. And yeah, I've got to go back and talk to her about that moment because we've never had a chance to break that <laughs> down. Um, yeah, you know the, the, the stresses are real, and I think we're trying to create a culture, and I think all of us are trying to create a culture where. You know, I, I know when a colleague had, would have cancer or diabetes or a broken leg, you know, we all rallied around them. You know, we, we took casseroles to their home. We told them to take as much time as they needed. We kept their jobs there until they could come back. And with mental health, that hasn't happened in the past. And we're hoping to create a culture where when someone comes forward, they get the support they need and the help they need, and, they, and they're back as soon as possible um, in the role that they have earned. Peter, I want to end by asking you about your career and what you're excited to do, what your mission in the world is. I'm excited to go back to school. I have a three-pronged goal for my professional life. One is to work with student-athletes at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. Specifically young men, I just feel like there's still so much work to be done to encourage vulnerability, communication, things like intimacy among young men. So it'd be ideal to work at a major university in their athletics program, doing one-on-one therapy with student-athletes, creating programming for coaches and administrators so that they understand how to have conversations about mental health, generally just understand mental health better. 
I'd also like to have my own private practice. I think that's just the hope of any aspiring therapist. <laughs> and then find some avenue to give free therapy to those who need it. I have recently tried to find a new therapist. This was probably a little over a year ago. But I remember the average wait time for first session was something between like two and four months. And I don't imagine my experience to be extremely unique. So just generally, I want to contribute to bolstering the mental health, I guess, specifically in this country. I want to continue to share my story. I think a great thing that any leader or I'm not calling myself a leader, but anybody in a position where people are looking at you, I think your openness and vulnerability and when we were talking about boundaries before your setting of boundaries will help others feel comfortable to do the same for themselves and i think i just want people to be happier and to understand what that means <laughs> because there's so much in our modern lives that we think is contributing to our happiness because it's giving us that like dopamine rush or serotonin but at the end of the day, it's actually just making it that much harder to achieve like inner peace and mm -hmm. what I believe happiness to be. Craig and Peter, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This has been a, an awesome experience. Laura, thanks for what you do and for giving us a chance to have a conversation with you. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.